We are uh, kicking off a new series through the book of Colossians uh, this week. And so we're just going to look at verses 1 to 2, Colossians 1, 1 to 2, as kind of an introduction uh, to the book and the rest of the series. And so I invite you to turn there and uh, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. And this is God's word. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us today. Uh, we ask that you, we thank you that your word is a living word, and we pray that through the power of your spirit, your word would do in our hearts what we can never do. We pray that your word would lift us up from death into life, and it would build in us uh, a work of Jesus, a work of new creation, that we would be formed more and more to look like Jesus. Father, we long for this. So we pray that you would be active in these moments to change us and transform us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but it's always fun when you start something new and you get better at it really fast. So maybe you start working out after not working out for a long time and uh, you go running or you go to the gym and some, lift some weights and you know, your body screams at you for that first week as you're very sore and everything aches, but then you start to get used to it and suddenly those weights that you were lifting feel a little bit easier. And then a week later, you start lifting, add a couple more pounds to it and you're amazed at how quickly you're getting stronger. And you think, man, this is awesome. Why don't more people lift weights? You know, soon I'll be arm wrestling Arnold Schwarzenegger. But then something happens. You hit a plateau and you're stuck at the same set of weights for months on end. And you feel like, what's happened? Why am I no longer getting stronger? And now you're not getting stronger. And so your motivation kind of wanes. And you start wondering, is all of this exercise making any difference? Maybe I need to try something new. Maybe I need a new diet or a trainer. Or maybe you just give up because you stop seeing the reward. We hit plateaus all the time. Have you ever hit a spiritual plateau? I know I have. Right, where maybe you're a newer Christian and yet you've been a Christian for long enough that you, look, you long for those days in the past when you were so hungry to know God and everything seemed to be falling in place in your life and now it feels like you're walking through a dark valley. Maybe you go through a period where you have rapid growth and God seems so alive and active in your life and, and, and those old sins lose their power and you feel like you're on this spiritual mountaintop but then one day things are different. Those old sins come back with a new force and you realize you don't have much desire to fight them like you used to. Old struggles come back. Family issues arise again. And you find yourself reacting the way that you used to. And you get discouraged because you don't see that change in your life. You read your Bible, but it feels dead to you. You pray and God feels far away. And you start to wonder, wait, am I doing this Christianity thing wrong? Is Christianity even worth it? Is Jesus making a difference in my life, or do I need something more? And that is the question that Colossians are ultimately wrestling with. Is Jesus enough? And as I said, we're starting this new series through the book of, of Colossians, and I decided to call it Jesus is Enough, because that's one of the main themes in this book. 
that Jesus is what you need at the beginning of your Christian walk. He's what you need in the middle, and he's what you need at the end. He has everything you need for all of life. But like the Colossians, we hit plateaus in our life. We find ourselves in rough patches, and we wonder, wait, do I need something more? Because it doesn't feel like Jesus is enough for me in this circumstance. I'm really excited to work through this book with you. A handful of years back, I feel like Colossians is kind of a... a uh, under-recognized book. And a couple of years back, I, I read through it a bunch of times in the course of a month or so. And it became my favorite of Paul's letters because it just puts so powerfully how incredible it is to be a Christian, that you actually have Christ living in you. And it unpacks some of what that means. And so we're going to look at that as well. And here's what I want you to remember this morning and really for the rest of our time in this book. Jesus is enough. And this morning, we're going to look just at two things. One, some kind of historical background to the book to help us place it in history. And then two, this theme of how Jesus is enough. And we'll see how that comes out throughout the book. So first, uh, some background. Colossians, like many New Testament letters or books, it was originally a letter written to a church or group of churches in that ancient time. And so we see Paul's audience in verse two, God's holy people in Colossae. There was a church there. But it was also common in those days that these letters would be circulated among various churches in a region. And for a very practical reason. Paper was expensive. You couldn't go and make a bunch of cheap copies. You couldn't CC all the people that you sent the email to. Uh, no, you had to uh, take the letter and physically take it somewhere. And in, in a similar way, if you go to the end of Colossians 4, chapter 4.16, we read, after this letter has been read to you, see that you also read it in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea, right? We'll get more bang for our buck. You guys trade letters so that you can understand what Paul is, is writing to you all and, and, and circulate this letter around. Uh, Colossae was a city uh, in what is now modern day Turkey. And it's kind of right in the middle of that peninsula. And it was landlocked and it was located in a valley, maybe not too different from ours, not quite as tall of mountains, and through the center of that valley ran the Lycus River. And before the New Testament was written, so before Roman times, there was this ancient highway that went from Ephesus uh, in, the e, or in the west and headed east towards the Euphrates River. And that highway, that ancient highway, went right through Colossae. And so because of that, the city, a city kind of built up around there. There was often travelers would stop there for rest or for food. Uh, but in Roman times, that highway went out of use and so with it, the town declined. Maybe like so many towns in the United States right now that maybe sat next to an old highway, but when the interstate was built 10 miles to the north, suddenly the economy of that town dries up because they don't have the travelers coming through it. Colossae was very similar. It was something of a has-been town. The, the, that Lycus Valley, though, because it had the river running through it and fairly fertile mountains, it was a popular place for she, uh, grazing sheep and raising sheep. And there was even a particular type of wool that was dyed deep red that was referred to as Colossian, Colossian wool that came from this region. Another unique thing about this book is that Paul hadn't actually visited this church. Uh, he didn't know these people personally. In chapter 2, verse 1, he writes, I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. Uh, the Colossians 
learned about the gospel from a man named Epaphras, who we see in verse 7, and he was also an acquaintance of Paul. Epaphras was probably from Colossae, but had visited Paul and given Paul an update on how the church is doing there. And Paul references that update in verse 4. We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people. Now you might wonder, well, why is Paul writing a letter to this church? It seems he felt some care for them. He hadn't personally been there, but he'd traveled in that region. He'd visited the city of Ephesus, uh, which wasn't too far away. But more than that, in verse 1, he tells us, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now notice he also includes Timothy's name there, and he doesn't give that title to Timothy, though. Timothy was his closest partner in ministries. In some ways, he was his successor. If anything, we would think, well, Timothy would become an apostle as well, but we don't see that. In fact, he just says, I'm the apostle, and Timothy is this partner in ministry. What does it mean to be an apostle then? In 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 through 7, Paul tells us, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time, and for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. So if we tease that out, we see that an apostle is this office, this temporary office for those people that were eyewitnesses to the risen Christ and had been appointed by God to share that news. Someone who can testify, Jesus is alive. He rose from the dead and I've seen him with my own eyes. And let me tell you about him. That's the reason why Paul in Ephesians 2 verse 20 calls the apostles the foundation of the church. And Jesus is the cornerstone. And, and then by implication, the idea is that all of us believers are resting on that foundation of the apostles, their testimony that Jesus is alive. So that you can't make yourself an apostle, but as Paul writes in verse 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And so if the risen Christ shows up in your life and says, hey, I'm alive, I'm back. And he says, your job is to proclaim to other people that you have seen Jesus and he is still alive. Well, then you can call yourself an apostle. But if you don't do that, or if Jesus hasn't shown up, well, it's probably not good to do that. That is why we have pastors today and not apostles. That our job is to help point people back to that foundation of Christ, that Jesus is enough not to be building the foundation bigger by adding on all these extra things. So that is why we don't see any place in Scripture where anyone is called an apostle after Paul. Paul is the last apostle, in a sense, and, and everyone else is just on his foundation. Timothy, who's mentioned here, helped write this letter. Now, it's probably that he served not as kind of a co-author, but a scribe of Paul. If you go to the very end of the book, we see where Paul writes, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. So most of the letter was not actually written by Paul, but was probably transcribed by Timothy, who was his helper there. And Paul also mentions at the end, remember my chains. Paul wrote this letter from prison. Now, Paul had toured many of the prisons throughout the Roman area. He raided and reviewed them all. 
And, and so it's hard to know exactly what prison he was in, but it was most likely he was in Ephesus, or, which was a town not too far away, 100 some miles away, or in Rome. Okay, so that's kind of a lot of uh, information dump as to this letter. What is this letter about? And that's Jesus is enough. So let's unpack these first two verses, and we're going to jump around to look at a bunch of the other book as well. In verse 2, we see this repetition of the word in. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. The Colossians are people that are living in two different worlds. This physical world, Colossae, and in Christ, this spiritual world. And it is easy for us as well to feel torn between these two worlds. That, that we are faithful brothers and sisters living in Utah and in Christ. And here's what I mean by that. It is easy to come to church on Sunday and, and maybe, you know, it's a good sermon and you enjoy singing the songs and you feel filled up and then you're drugged down back to earth at 9 a.m. on Monday when you sit down at your desk to go to work. It's easy to have a few moments of uplifting prayer and reflection with God. And then five minutes later, you finish your Bible study and you lose your temper with your kids because of something they do. Right? We are stuck between these two worlds. And it is so discouraging, isn't it? That, that at least it gets discouraging for me, right? It's, it's like, why is it that I can find such joy in reading the Bible and in Scripture, and that joy is about as resilient as ice on a summer sidewalk as soon as it meets the rest of life, right? And I get angry just as fast as I did before. I'm irritable. I'm moody. Why does the peace that I have with Christ when I'm reading the Bible in the morning dissipate like morning fog as soon as it hits the, the heat of a 9 a.m. workday? Why do I feel like I can be living in Utah, or in Christ, but it is so hard for me to be like, feel like I'm in both places at the same time in harmony. Isn't this so much of our struggle? And that is the plate that plateau that so many of us feel stuck at. I can have a great Bible study, right? go to a great Bible study at night, and then yell at my kids 15 minutes after I get home. I can have a wonderful devotion in the morning, and yet feel overwhelmed from a comment by my coworker on my way into the office. I don't know about you, but I want a Christianity that changes my day-to-day -day life, right? that doesn't just leave me feeling great on, on Sunday or great when I'm studying the Bible on my own, but is a Christianity that allows me to go into the heat of life and still produce that fragrance of Christ in the hard places. And that's why we need Colossians. Because what Paul is going to show us in this book is Jesus is enough to bring a harmony between those two worlds that we find ourselves living in. Consider uh, Colossians 1.16. For in Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The only way to find that harmony in your life 
is through Jesus. That was one of the reasons why he came to earth, was to bring a harmony to all things, the things in heaven and the things on earth, to help reduce some of that tension. And it started with himself. Who is Jesus? Well, he is 100% God, fully God, and 100% man in one person. He is a picture of the harmony of heaven and earth coming together. And he lived his life in that perfect harmony. He didn't go away and have beautiful prayer time in the morning with God, his father. And then at 10 a.m., you know, he's angry and irritated as disciples because he's so dense. He never felt this tension where he's like, well, I knew I know this is what God, my father, wants me to do. But this is what I want to do. So what do I do? No, he lived in perfect harmony. He was the picture of what it meant to be fully and truly human. And what he offers to do for you is to make you human again. To make you into a person that has the harmony of heaven and earth in one body. Do you want what is your duty to be your delight? Do you want Jesus to bring that harmony into your day-to-day life that when, you know, your spouse or your ex or your kids or whoever it is is incessantly nagging you, you react not in frustration, but in grace. Do you want to be able to read that email from your boss and, and not allow it to ruin your day? In the end, the answer is Jesus. He is enough to let us live with his grace in the day-to-day stress of life. I love Eugene Peterson's translation of verses 18 to 20. He says, Christ was supreme in the beginning, and leading the resurrection parade, he is supreme in the end. From the beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything and everyone. So spacious is he, so expansive, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death and his blood poured down from the cross. In the Christian life, you never move beyond Christ. You never graduating, graduate from Jesus into something deeper and move beyond him. No, the Christian life is one of discovering the never-ending depths of Jesus, and letting those depths work its way into your heart. We've been planting a bunch of plants at our house and doing all the landscaping, and it's amazing to me how the dirt can be so dry on the top, but as you dig down deeper, you eventually find water, right? Dirt with water in it. And the Christian life it is like that. It is like learning to let those roots go down. It's not that Christ is not there and that you need to go somewhere else. It's that his living water is deep in the earth and you just need to let your roots go down deeper into him. And that is what will let you survive the drought. He is there. It's what Paul says in Colossians 2, 6. Just as you accepted Christ, you must now continue to follow him. Jesus is enough for the beginning and the middle and the end. He then continues, 
let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built upon him. And then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. We don't need, you don't need something in addition to Jesus. What you need is to learn to let those roots grow down into that dirt where the living water of Christ is ready to nourish you. Not too many of us drive manual transmissions these days. I know we've got a handful of folks in the church that have a manual, but maybe you did at one point, or you at least know kind of how it works. And imagine if you had a car with a manual transmission, but you never shifted out of first gear, right? And you just learned how to, you know, let the clutch out and get the car going, but you never learned how to move anything beyond that. Now, you could probably drive around town okay, right? But the moment you tried to get on I-15 and getting up to, you know, 70 or 80 miles per hour in first gear, well, the longer you go on the on-ramp, the more your car starts screaming at you, right? And you see the RPMs go closer and closer into that red zone. And if you let it the, off the gas, the, the car would probably lurch as the engine tries to slow down and not explode. And imagine in that experience, you said, oh, I just need a new car. This car can't handle this, right? This car is good for getting, driving around town, doing errands, but it can't take handle I-15. It can't take me places. And, and if you're that person or someone, you know, a friend, you said, well, don't you realize you've got another four gears here or five gears here that you can shift through? This car is more than enough. You're just not using it. And I wonder how many of us never leave first gear when it comes to following Christ. Right? You, you think, well, Jesus is okay for these little things in life, but he can't handle the highways. He can't take me the places I want to go. But listen to how Paul describes Christ in Colossians 2.9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. All the fullness of God has been packaged in to Christ. There is nothing of God that is not in Christ. And what that means is that Christ makes that 8-liter, 16-cylinder, 1,500-horsepower Bugatti engine, one of the most powerful engines you can have in a car, look like a Fiat 500. <laughs> and Paul continues, guess what? And in Christ, you have been brought to that fullness. He's saying, and God took that engine and put it under your hood. Do you believe that? Or are you just driving through life, never leaving first gear, thinking God's left me underpowered to handle the stresses I've got right now? And the temptation is to think you need something more. Well, I need to try this thing or that thing or add this thing. It's what the Colossians seem to start struggling with. And one of the reasons why Paul writes this letter. Maybe they've plateaued and they think, maybe I need to try these other things to help me reach new levels and peaks in the Christian life. So Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 20, You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. And so much in Christianity, there's this 
this almost subtle lie that says, you know, if you could just try harder, maybe if you could beat yourself up more, if you could live a more self-disciplined life, then you could experience these things. And this doesn't mean there's no room for self-discipline. No, that's, a, that's a Christian virtue to be self-disciplined. But that alone cannot bring the change that you and I most need. It cannot change your heart. It cannot turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. It cannot massage out those knots in your heart that you keep tripping over. You have something that is so much better, Paul says. You have a life that has already been elevated into heaven. It's what Paul writes then in that very next section, the beginning of chapter 3. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ. saying this is a reality right now. Your life is in heaven. So set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. What we need is to recognize what God has already done in us. That we need a change of heart, and only God can do that. You need your desires changed. So often we know what is good, and and we know what is fun, and rarely are those two things the same. What we need is our duty to be brought into harmony with our delight. And we need to have what we long for most to be what is most good for us. And that is what Christ does. That the moment you become a Christian, it is like a cord from heaven comes down and plugs into your heart. And to be a Christian is to have the electricity of heaven charging your batteries. Do you believe you have that right now? Do you live in that way, that what is powering your heart, what is powering your motivations, what is powering your actions is actually the power of heaven in you? Now, I fall so far short of that. You probably do too. I want to live more that way. I want the way that I react in those stressful situations and when things are hard to smell of heaven and not of the way we so naturally react. And that brings us then to the last part of verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. If you've read any of Paul's letters, basically he starts every letter with these words. And it'd be a mistake to gloss over it, though, that these words are really what this whole book is about. Grace and peace to you. How do you bring a harmony between those two worlds that you feel torn between? Living in this world and the way it operates and living in Christ. And the answer is through grace and peace. Imagine if that is what is coursing through your veins more than your circumstances of the day. How much would your reactions change if it was grace and peace that filled your heart more than the worry and stress that sits there now? And Colossians is a book about how do you make your tank bigger for more of that grace and peace? How do you get better batteries in there so that you have greater capacity for that grace and peace that God longs to offer us? How do we fill our tanks with that? It's something that you have, you've tasted it, but it's something that we always need more of. This is how Paul writes in verse 6 of chapter 1. The same good news that came to you is going out all over the world, and it's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives. Just as it changed your life from the day you first heard, and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. It is his grace that changes your heart. It's his grace that bears fruit when you first came to know him. And yet then Paul goes on in verses 9 to 10. 
We ask that God would give you a complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then you will live and will always honor and please the Lord. And your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. And what's he saying? The path of the Christian life is to know more of that grace and peace from God. We're all on the same path. We're all on the same journey. We need to know grace and peace in our life. That Christian growth isn't about, you know, some secret hack or optimization to get you free from these things that you struggle with. There's not some shortcut in the Christian life, but it is about learning day by day to let that grace and peace of God work its way into your heart and down to your toes and out to your fingers. So here's just two ways we can apply this this week. First, read through the book of Colossians. It's only four chapters. You can do it in one setting. Read through it a couple times if you want to. And look at for some of these themes that I've mentioned and how they work their way out. And then next, maybe you could do this with a friend or your spouse or, or someone else or, or just even think about it on your own. Where are some places in your life where you don't have that harmony, right? Where you feel pulled into the world and you wish there was more of Christ in how you reacted. Where do you need more grace and peace in your life, right? And maybe write those places down. Talk about them and start praying for God, even every day. God, give me grace and peace in this area. Maybe get really specific in how I react in this circumstance. When this person says this thing or when this thing happens, let me react with grace and peace instead of irritability and anger. And do that every day this week and see if it doesn't start to make a difference. How many of us feel like we've plateaued spiritually? How many of you wish there was more harmony in your life? That the joy that you feel of Christ on one day would make a difference in how you react tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. And then the book of Colossians is for you. I know I need this. I hope you do too. The need is for us to realize how much more of Christ there is if we would just take advantage of it. Jesus is enough yesterday. He's enough today. And he's enough for tomorrow. And let's discover how he is over these next few months. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would fill us with your grace and peace. We ask that that would fill our bodies like the blood fills our heart and our veins. We pray that you would reprogram our natural reactions to be ones that are moved by grace and peace instead of pride or self-righteousness or fear or worry or anger. Lord, Christ is the only one who can reprogram our hearts, who can change our hearts. And he is enough for us. And Lord, we pray that you would show us that even this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.